0: All right, here we are yet again on a Tuesday. I don't think have I ever streamed on a Tuesday? Have I ever like normally it's Mondays and Wednesdays. Why why today? Well, cuz today's one of the only free evenings I have. So um yeah, let's 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 do this thing. Uh yeah. So, uh pretty much treat this like a Monday stream except it's on a Tuesday. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk mysteries, all things mysteries, publishing mysteries, writing mysteries, making mysteries, doing mysteries, fixing them. There's a lot of detail here. If you are listening to this on the podcast, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not missing anything in the visuals because I'm going to try and read as many through the visuals as possible. But if you are interested in the visuals and you're listening to the podcast, uh let me know in some way, shape, or form. Find me on social media, write me an email, um, and I'll be happy to send you the physical slides themselves. But by and large, you're not missing anything profound in the visuals tonight. It's just going to be me, you know, walking through probably a lot more detail in this than you expect. Uh, this has more detail than the romance stream, just a heads up. Part of that is because I have more things to say. And part of it is I'm more, as familiar as I am with romance, I am more familiar with mystery. And I think you'll see why when, uh, when we do this in like 20 seconds. I don't have any theme music. Um, I, I have the usual Monday stuff, but I don't have anything new yet. So uh, if you'll indulge me a moment, we'll go hit that. And then um, we'll move on from there. Sound good? All right. Let's do this thing. All right, so tonight we're talking mystery. We talked romance last time. Now we're doing mystery. We're sort of working our way through all the major genres. Uh, Coming soon will be fantasy. And I'm making a distinction between fantasy and sci-fi because both have a lot of pieces to cover. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed yet, uh, no camera tonight, mainly to cut down on my anxiety, but also because there's like a lot of information to cover. And if you're watching this video or checking out this stream, Uh, I couldn't figure out where to put the camera in a place where you'd see me relative to the stuff I'm going to try and walk through. So rather than fight for a very tiny camera that made me anxious, uh, I thought I would just talk at you. Now, my goals here tonight are pretty straightforward. I want to inform you about some mystery production and some mystery elements that you've maybe, maybe known or maybe only known part of but also to walk you through the construction and the formula. And I know those are elements, especially in uh, some writing communities and writing spaces that don't get talked about. There's an awful lot of assumption that writers of mysteries just know this stuff because they've seen episodes of murder. She wrote, or they've watched Columbo or Matlock or something, or they watch um, like boomer level procedurals on, was it CBS or something? And they just know this stuff because they're around it. And that's fine to learn that stuff sort of by seeing it on screen, seeing it in practice. But like we do with the Patreon, it's, I think, more important to see the theory as well as what it is in practice so that you can see where, let's say, those NCIS and other alphabet crime shows really fail to develop an adequate mystery. And they're just basically propaganda of one kind or another and we all know, you know, 1312 1312 1312 all day. So, um we can do better. We can absolutely do better. And I think first we should probably um you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a hot second and I know we're streaming and I know it's like a huge no-no when we're live streaming and stuff, but I'm reasonably certain I forgot to set I did. I forgot to set the button. So we're going to do a thing real quick. I'm just going to vamp for a hot second and tell you that mystery is my favorite genre. Mystery is really and truly what I just love the most, mostest. And it's been that way since I was a little kid. My grandparents watched mysteries almost exclusively. And since I was so frequently uh, passed off, dropped off to them, uh, it was just what... Uh, was on of all kinds, mysteries, uh, the the NBC nightly mystery movie, uh, episodes of Matlock and Columbo, episodes of Murder, She Wrote, all different kinds of stuff. I've talked about uh, my love affair with Murder, She Wrote and other mysteries in a couple different interviews and stuff. I love this. It's my favorite. So I'm sitting here. I should have done this before. I apologize. We're just eating up a couple seconds. It's fine. I promise I will make it up to you in a moment when we get going. And then we do this, and then we do this, and boom, we're done. All right, I think that worked. I hope that worked. Let's get started. So we're going to start by defining what a mystery is. Uh, Other than to say it's a very popular genre, it is currently, by some accounts, your third or fourth most popular genre. Uh, In self-publishing spaces, it's still predominantly romance dominant, but mysteries are right up there. Uh, And everybody's sort of fighting in and around science fiction fantasy right now. Mystery is what's called an anchor Genre. It's a genre that a publisher can pick up and get into and create a fairly stable printing model and therefore can usually count on a dependable audience. Maybe not always the same size, but certainly a return audience over and over as mystery writers develop series. Because series, more so than anywhere else, more so than even fantasy, mystery is the genre kind of um, expecting series on some level. And so often writers design things with a series in mind, even if it's just two books. It's designed with more than one story. Fantasy is probably your other great uh, series case, series uh, unit, but... Um, mystery has almost always had a lock on things, going as far back as the 19th century. And again, that's that's by design, but we'll talk about that when we talk about some stuff. So let's let's define what a mystery is. And the definition, at least as uh, what we're using tonight, as well as a really good definition that'll carry you for a while, whether you're writing it, reading it, editing it, playing it as a game, whatever. A mystery is a story where the attempt of a central the attempt and commission of a central conflict so that's somebody trying to do a thing and doing a thing is done by unknown character or characters to be revealed by or at the end of the story to put that in english somebody did something and we're going to find out who it was and what they did by the time the story is done Somebody did something. We're going to find it all out by the end. Now, that doesn't mean everything is held until the end. It just means that over the course of the story, we will find out our, we will make the unknown elements into known elements. And it depends on what the unknown element is relative to the story. It depends on the particular kind of story and how it's being written and how it's being told as to whether you have just an unknown element of who committed the crime who did the thing, or if it was somebody did something and we don't know who and we don't know what they did, or we don't know the method, or we, there's at least one unknown in all these cases. Generally, there's two unknowns, whether that's person and method, or person and action, like somebody did something when the lights went out. who knows what it was, or it's a matter of why somebody did a thing. They stole the baseball diamond why because of reasons there's almost always at least one unknown and to build a story around knowledge of the unknown and i don't mean like they know the answer but knowing that there's stuff there are blanks to fill in i'm trying not to use the word known a million times knowing that there are um fill in the blank discoverable content discoverable media material stuff things helps drive a mystery a mystery unlike fantasy and unlike romance has a lot more flexibility romance is still going to be predicated around some kind of multi-person relationship dynamic two people falling in love three people a love triangle four people a polycule a family um, a breakup, there's some kind of relationship thing in a romance novel. In a mystery, it's a matter of the unknown. And how much unknown and how big a deal it is and why it's unknown, those are all variable, let's call them sliders or knobs, that can be adjusted for the sake of story. On we go. Hang on. i got to click the button. So let's move us into the terribly named History of mysteries. All right, when I made this slide, look, I really thought it was like cute and funny. And now I'm looking at it like, ugh, I could have done better. But yes, let's cover some just basic ground history, mostly for interest, mostly to kind of give us uh, a few looks backwards or look backward towards how we got where we're at and what it is we're trying to do. Because if we go look at our history, we can learn about the direction mystery was intended to go so mystery is our second oldest type of story because mystery when you zoom out and make it it's it's remember it's about revealing the unknown original mysteries also include religious doctrine how did how did the sunrise and how did the sunset and you know the the naturalistic pantheon of deities work in mysterious ways there's It's not always crime fiction. It's not always about a detective. It later became so. But initially, mystery is just stories of the unknown. And that's anything from mythology, religion, um, challenging sort of social structures in Greek discourse, uh, some kinds of plays with supernatural elements or um, heavy, like, Greek-Roman-level heavy drama elements— Mystery is our second oldest type of story. Our first oldest, by the way, is just uh, accounting, just tracking herds and telling the story of how we hunted the animals and where we found the good food to eat in our foraging. and, And how much food we got and when we were here and when we were there. Just accounting is our oldest form of story. Mystery is our second. And then it kind of divides from there into a number of different things, including social customs, like warning us, hey, don't go in there. That's where the bear lives. And then all the way into different civilization customs, like, you know, we formed, we moved from a nomadic society to a grounded society. Here's how we did it. Here's our ledgers and documentation for what we grow and how we grow it. Here's our knowledge. Here's our language. And it goes from there. Modern mystery, as we've most come to understand it, when you think mystery now, you are thinking mystery that really gets its start, and this is why it's debatable, depending on what school of thought you have. So some people will tell you that mystery starts in 1747 with Voltaire, yeah, the philosopher, Voltaire and the character, uh, which I've only ever heard it pronounced as Zadig, but it might be Zadig or Zadig or Zadig, it's Z-A-D-I-G. I don't entirely know how to pronounce it. I've only ever read it. Or if you don't like 1747 as your start date, you're going to look at 1819 and a guy named E.T.A. Hoffman wrote a thing called Das Fraulein von Scuderi, which is a, a, a story of a fraulein. Neither of those two stories are like, they're not barn burners you don't have to go run out and read them they're not really going to tell you anything it's not like oh holy shit obviously it's those two elements they're they're forgotten texts for a reason but they're at least genealogically important when it comes to mysteries because they set up the the rough idea of oh there's a thing that's not known and one of these characters is going to go out and do something about it to make it known. And there will be consequences to both the active discovery as well as the thing discovered at the end. Whether that's a crime, whether that's a solution, whether that's comfort, whether that's peace, whether that's wealth, whether that's whatever, there are pluses and minuses to working on solving it as well as having it solved. Those are your two sort of starting points for mystery prior to the mid-1800s. Once you get to the mid-1800s, there are considerably three definite detective forebears. Edgar Allan Poe's uh, August Lupin in Murders in the Rue Morgue, Wilkie Collins' Moonstone series, which is roughly within 10 years of Murders in the Rue Morgue, and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock, all the Sherlock Holmes stuff. Everything else everything Western, everything non-Asian, since then traces back to one of those three stories, whether it's uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes or Moonstone or Murders in the Room, Morgan. There's a lot of overlap and, and uh, literary incest with this stuff because eventually everything comes back to that. We don't really go back to Voltaire or Hoffman, mainly because they're not as popular as Poe and Doyle. Wilkie Collins isn't even that uh, known or important, but uh, it, it's worth pointing out that they're all sort of contemporaries-ish, give or take a decade or two in some cases. But they're all sort of working from this idea of a central detective character, usually male, usually white, usually privileged, Doing things, interacting with the world in a way that they are the only character who can resolve this unknown element and figure out what this, what this thing is. So they created, uh, in this sort of mid-1800s, uh, mid-1800s setup, the first detective is The Gentleman Detective. We'll, we'll break all of these things down, but your Gentleman Detective comes first, and it's mostly European, and this is how you get into things like Lord Peter Wimsey and Jeeves and Wooster, and I'm sure somebody somewhere is like, ooh, they're naming all the things I like. Yes, Gentleman Detective is a long-standing series, and we'll talk about how Gentleman Detective stories are different than anything else, but we have to start there. And it's important we start there to recognize two things. One, Gentleman Detective is incredibly classist and exclusionary. And yes, it's a John workshop, so we're going to mention class. But it's classist and exclusionary because we're setting up the idea that the Gentleman Detective is works best when they are apart or separated from everybody else. Whether that's by wealth or privilege or stupidity or genius or talent or whatever. Again, we're going to break all this down when it comes to it. We just start with Gentleman Detective. And over time, over the 1800s, Gentleman Detective rules the roost. It's the go-to detective format. But then we get to America. And in America, because it's America, we have to do things different. So we take the setup of the Gentleman Detective, characters set apart, characters with traits and skills, and we end up splitting it into two subdivisions. So now we've branched our family tree into juvenile detectives, which are children, essentially, or young kids, or anybody not an adult, and pulp detective, which is more what you'd find in serialized magazines. Pulp detectives are very much of the early 20th century. They are very much uh, bare-knuckle, roll-your-sleeves-up, tough-guy kind of story vibes, from juvenile detectives, that's Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, the Bobsey Twins, uh, Tom Swift, any any of the stuff, any of the kids books you would be handed that are now classified as maybe middle grade reader, middle grade, maybe young adult to some degree, where your kid is the detective, Encyclopedia Brown, that kind of thing, and pulp detective is usually just. Men being men, swaggering, and and crime-solving. And from those two, we get a ton of further separations and breakdowns genealogically. We move into the hard-boiled detective. That's where we get noir and things like that. The procedural detective, that's cop stories. The cozy detective, which is cozy mystery. The reluctant detective, which is a a totally interesting and different way of having a character engage with stuff. And most recently, the urban fantasy detective, usually a wizard or some kind of magic user using magic as a tool in the solving or restoration or justice with crime and problems. That's our current genealogy. By no means is this complete, but I can only fit so much on the screen. But it's at least important to know that everything you can think of now in terms of modern detective structure eventually traces back to juvenile or pulp detectives, which eventually trace back to gentleman detective. Understanding this allows us to say, well, what are the rules and structures for each of these? And what can I draw from? And what can I use in order to craft my own detective story? There's your genealogy. We're going to keep moving. Now, here's where we get into the theory. What goes into a mystery? What makes a mystery a mystery? It's not just the definition. How do we turn this practical? How do we turn this into a thing we can do something with? And so we're going to start very simply. A crime or conflict is the core of the story. Now, crime is a loaded term, and there are times in this I've used the word crime to describe the ideas and nature of mystery. Crime is a loaded term sociologically and socially because crime suggests wrongdoing and wrongdoing is always assessed by the people in power. What What is a crime to them may not actually be a crime. It might be uh, an action caused by necessity thanks to deprivation or... Uh, rebellion or independence or asserting of autonomy or anything like that. But we're going to classify crime as bad stuff done by bad people, which is not the greatest definition, certainly not the most compassionate definition. But for the sake of crafting a mystery, I'm lumping crime and conflict together. Conflict is just like plot, just a problem to be resolved. Now we're going to break this down further and into four things you need no matter what kind of detective story you're getting. Whether you're writing a cozy, whether you're writing a kid detective, whether you're writing Scooby-Doo, whether you're writing, you know, magic wizard detective, whatever, you need four things. First thing you're going to need is somebody doing something, a committer of this conflict, the guilty person, the criminal, the murderer, the thief, the whatever they are. Somebody has to do the thing to create the situation over which there is conflict. Somebody's got to steal that diamond. Somebody's got to murder that guy. Somebody has to, you know, rob the cash box. Somebody's got to do something. The reason, now following that, they need to have a reason they're doing it. They can't just do it to do it. They can't just do it because, oh, they're so wacky. They're doing it. They're taking this, they're committing this crime. They're doing this action, whatever it might be, to gain something to protect something or someone, to stop something or someone, to induce or cause something or someone to do something or affect something that's currently going on. Let's go over those sort of in example. To gain something. I'm going to steal this valuable jewelry because I want it. I want to gain it. To protect something. I'm committing this crime because... If I go out and rob this bank, I can use that money to pay for my sick grandmother's operation. Or if I commit this crime and damage these bulldozers, I can prevent them destroying the rainforest. To stop something is more direct. If I steal this magic piece of art, then the bad guys won't be able to use it to unleash the terrible unspeakable evil on the world. Or if I, you know, take this thing or cast this spell or go here and bump off that guy, then this evil plan won't go into place and it won't happen and the world will be better for it. Or to induce, to start something. If I steal this and I show the 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 whole world that this big giant mega corporation is truly vulnerable, then maybe I will finally induce that rebellion I so badly want because I'll show them that the emperor has no clothes on. Or to affect something, just to make some amount of change, I'm stealing from these people because I need the money to buy food. I, I'm tired. I'm cold and tired, and I, I want to be dry and warm somewhere tonight. Those are all, and this is important, incredibly selfish. And I don't mean that in a negative selfish way. I mean, they're all self-centered reasons. A person does a thing, whatever it is in the story, for reasons they believe necessary and critical and important to themselves. And they've done, or will do over the course of the story, any amount of justification to make that happen. So yeah, they're totally murdering somebody in our story but they swear they have to. They've got a, what feels to them and what they believe and therefore what they're acting on, a completely legit reason. Gain, protect, stop, induce, affect. And whether we want to spin that into jealousy or move that into anger or move that into interest or greed or anything, those are all different filters to lens those verbs for us. Focus on the verb, less so than the motive, and the motive will make more sense no matter what it is. Next thing you need. You need a location where this happens. If you're killing somebody, the body has to go somewhere. They have to be discovered somewhere. There has to be a place for the action to occur. There has to be a place for the investigation to occur. It doesn't just happen in the abstract. Locations matter here. We'll talk about those in more detail shortly. But you need places for the story to occur, a stage upon which the players may strut. And lastly, because it's a mystery, you need somebody to resolve it. You need a detective, a a, a crime sleuth, a gumshoe, uh, your next-door nosy neighbor, uh, a little old lady from a small town in Maine... Uh, A hardened, grizzled detective pulled back on one more case, whatever it might be. Just like you needed somebody to do the thing to kick the plot, you need a main character who's going to resolve the problem. You can't build a mystery without those four things. And I know that sounds really simplistic, and I guess from some level it's all sort of obvious. But as we talk about different genres and the different other things we need, you can't go anywhere without... Ticking one of these boxes first. When you think about what goes into your mystery, when you think about what goes into your story, you've got to make sure you've got these things. Three of them are going to be obvious. Somebody did the bad thing. Somebody's trying to stop them, and there was a place the bad thing happened. Easy. Basic story stuff. The harder stuff is to gain, to protect, to stop, to induce, to affect, because those things are the why, And the why, as in why somebody did a thing, or why they now need to be dealt with in whatever way they need to be dealt with, matters because those whys reveal more about the character than the action they took that's the problem in the first place. Yes, they're quite dexterous because they're a thief, but the reason they're a thief is more interesting than the action they took to be thiefly, if that makes sense. On we go to the next. Which leads us to the biggest element in mystery, the clue. A clue is a story element, anything, an object, a person, a conversation, a moment, a picture, uh, a feeling, a mood, something heard, said. Um, it's literally anything in a story that assists or challenge resolution of the crime, resolution of the conflict. So it's the murder weapon. That's going to assist in the solution. Or it's the money shoe prints that'll assist in the solution. But to challenge the resolution would be your red herrings, would be your deflections, would be your cases of, you know, well, it could be Tom, but it could also be Bill. Or it could be this person or that person or any number of these people. When I say challenge the resolution, I'm proposing an alternative to the obvious conclusion. Clues don't always have to do that. Some clues can sometimes offer challenge to the resolution. Some clues don't. You don't have to, and we'll talk about red herrings and and complications later when we talk about problems, but you don't have to go out of your way to, like, manufacture a certain number of red herrings. There's no magic number. It's not like, oh, four is too many and two is perfect. Every story is going to be different. Some don't have any. And that's okay. It depends on what you're writing and how you're writing it. But clues are just elements of story that we're going to use one way or the other in the resolution of things. And a clue economy is the engine by which our story moves forward. So there's the discovery of the clue. That's going to be be step number one. Look, a muddy footprint. We've discovered the clue. That discovery prompts from the character who discovered it or the detective who's resolving it prompts a reaction. Now that reaction might be verbal. Ah, oh, good job, A show what? Why Watson? It might be mental. It might be we might get a, you know a paragraph of text in their head as they have an internal. Uh, it might be a combination of things. it might be anything. It's they respond to it in some way. There is a reaction. Now because of what the clue is and because of the reaction this leads the detective to the next part of our cycle where there is decision a decision gets made or they speculate and start to look kind of at hypothesize or they begin to craft or cement an existing theory so I see this muddy footprint and I say to myself ah this is our, my this is my first clue let's say it's the first thing we discover so my reaction is surprise it's interest ooh so now I have to come to my next part of the cycle? Do I make a decision? Do I speculate? Do I craft a theory? I can do all three. I can do two of the three. I can just do one, but I'm going to do something. And in my case, if this is the first clue I'm encountering, I'm going to speculate because I don't have any other evidence, but I'm also going to make a decision to keep looking for more stuff. So my reaction prompts a decision and speculation. If the footprint were my second, third, fourth, fifth, 20th, 30th, 70th clue, maybe by then, by the time I discover it, I'll have a theory in place and go, ah, the perpetrator of this dastardly deed not only had muddy shoes, but you know is allergic to this plant because they walked all the way around it. You don't always have to have all three. Two out of the three is fine. Whichever two, up to you decision, or speculation, or theory. And lastly, before we start making the turn back to discovery, we, we take action. Because of that decision, because of that speculation, because of that theory, the investigation continues, or an action is taken. So, hmm, muddy footprints, okay, I've speculated that the killer wore boots to do this. Great. I'm going to go, decision, I'm going to go look for more stuff, and that's when I discover the pry bar marks on the window frame. I've investigated Now, because I've investigated, I've got that new clue. I've gone back to the top of the cycle. My investigation led to a new clue, the pry bar marks on the window, which prompt a reaction, which lead to more decision, speculation, or theory, which lead to more investigation. And around and around this cycle we go. Discover a clue. React to it. Think about it and do something with it. Make a decision and take action. Discover more over and over. This is a consequential loop. I do a thing and there are consequences for doing a thing over and over until we, go th- we move through all the clues we want to, however many. There's no magic number. You just need at least two, but there's no magic number past that. You need two because one is just a thing, two is coincident, more than two is storycraft. But clue cycle, clue engine, clue economy, all the same thing. It's just this set of four elements over and over and over again. Every clue, whether it's an actual material valuable thing to our story or a red herring, goes through these four steps. It's just that for the red herrings, some of the speculation or decisions or theories or reactions are dismissive. But we'll talk about information flow when we talk about resolving problems and stuff. But for now, learn your mystery engine. If you're, By the way, if you're watching this and you're thinking, like, how do I gamify this? Uh, all these steps, discovery of clue, reaction, decision or speculation, and react and then action or investigation, those are all things your players would probably roll dice for or use an ability or trait to move things along because they' are character facing decisions. What do I do with this? How do I interpret it? What action do I take because of it? How do I move forward? All basic player decisions, all basic character decisions. What your character chooses to do reveals not only some of their skills, because that's what they're using to do things, but also how they feel and perceive the world. Because how I choose to act or behave is relative to what I believe is right or good or bad or on what I'm willing to do. All of that is augmented and tested and supplemented by the material I interact with, in this case, clues. On we go. So this leads us to making a detective. Now, I'm going to use that word detective a lot. It just basically means the character resolving the mystery conflict. Here are some basics about detectives in detective stories. Their traits, their skills, stuff like that, all vary by story type and by author. So... My take on this kind of detective goes one way, your take goes on another because I'm choosing to highlight these skills. Crafting this detective and pitting them against that detective, those detectives, although both smart, are varied. They're not smart in the same way. Traits vary depending on who's writing them and how they're being applied. Skills also vary that way. Who's writing them, what they're doing it, or what they're doing with it. But also, and this is how we separate skills from traits in this case, skills are opportunistic in mystery. So it's not necessary that randomly out of the blue detective will turn to character B and go, you know what character B I'm also randomly on this Tuesday an expert knife thrower. I mean, maybe that'll come up, but at like two o'clock in the afternoon, randomly on a Tuesday, about an hour after lunch, it's going to, be weird to just randomly have somebody go, I throw knives, I'm real good at it. Skills are opportunistic in mysteries. Now, that's also a downside because all of a sudden you'll get a character into a situation and and then decide, well, in order to resolve the situation, I'm just going to make them good at the skill they need to get out of it, which is a little lazy and and a little poorly organized, but it's, it speaks to the idea that the skill a character has is only going to show up when it's needed. Randomly, we're not sitting there talking to high society while also thinking about pickpocketing. It, it doesn't match. Skills are variable by opportunity. In terms of gamifying this, this is why you have more than one skill on a character, why they don't only just do one thing. The detective, whomever they might be, however they are, I don't know how else to put this. They need to be involved in the main plot of the story. I know that sounds real obvious, but you would be surprised at the number of times and the number of people I've, I've talked to and work with where in an effort to be clever, in an effort to like make sure the reader keeps guessing or however they want to say it, they, they want to keep the reader on their toes, that kind of thing. Uh, they try not to involve the detective in the main plot. And by the way, the main plot is the mystery. So it feels like the mystery isn't a big deal because the main character isn't doing anything with it. A detective's involvement in the main plot is critical. And a lot of people paint themselves into, into a corner because they're trying to find ways to like, cut away from the detective to talk about what the villain is doing. We're going to talk about villains shortly. But they, they overcomplicate things and they forget that one of the benefits of the detective function is its limitation. The fact that the detective and therefore the reader are only involved up to the point a single character could be involved, they can't be everywhere all at once. While there's other stuff happening, they only you know the detective and reader only find about it, find out about it after the fact helps make that A plot feel substantial. Now, here's another significant element for detectives in detective fiction. They have to be the only one who can resolve the story. Other people could figure out the clues. Other people, like the mom in Glass Onion, can sit there and go, Oh, it's a stereogram. Oh, it's a compass. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. But it's up to the detectives to resolve the conflict. Only they're able to do it. It's what makes them special. It's what it's why they're in the story in the first place. The reason they're able to do this, the reason why they're best suited to do the solving of the problem is because their combination of skills and traits, whatever they might be, allow this character and in this story, this character alone, to make the connections between clues and reactions and interactions and statements and objects and activities and other story elements. They're the only ones who can piece all this stuff together to build the A to B to C to D linear expression of the story to solve it. Only them. Other characters can come close, but it's ultimately up to the detective because of skills and traits, be it super intelligence or just knowledge or experience or both or whatever, only the detective can piece the majority of it together and see it all the way through to its conclusion. That's just A plot, though. Main plot, primary stuff. What about B plots? B plots, which are usually reserved for character arc and character development, B plots are reduced in focus. They're there, sometimes, but a B plot is more about utility. Utility for the character or utility for the A-plot. A very common trait in when we talk about pulp and hard-boiled detectives later is that your B-plot is a second case that your detective is on that at the time doesn't feel like it it sort of tangles up with your primary case. It seems like two different things, only the utility of it is that it's the reason why all these things merge together in the third act or the mid-second act leading to climax. Utility is just about showing more options in depth to pre-existing material. If we're going to affect the character via a character arc, we're affecting them in a B-plot relative to what's going on. We're not going to suddenly introduce a random B-plot that totally pulls everything away and puts everything else on a shelf so that our character can build a boat in their garage or their basement or something. And then, oh, by the way, they're all, when they're not doing that, they're solving this hardcore like crime spree. The disparity between those two things makes the B-plot in that case feel really, really pointless. And it's not that everything needs to be all nice and neatly packaged and super tied up with a bow on it. What matters is that the utility of the B-plot reveals something that will affect some other element in the story. We're showing the character as isolated and lonely because maybe that isolation and loneliness is either a skill or trait that helps us solve the story or it's something that creates more tension or creates more danger. There is a utility to it. We're not just doing it to eat up page space. That B-plot and a character's involvement in the B-plot can serve more than one aim. So it's not just a matter of, there's a second case and we have to solve it. It can also be a thing that reveals a character relationship. It can be a character transformative arc while also accomplishing some story stuff. It can do more than one thing. A lot of B plots, when people construct them, they're very sort of polar or unipolar in their task completion. It's, oh, the B plot is also, oh, by the way, they have to go to the store and get milk. And there are challenges along the way, but ultimately they get the milk and it's over. A B-plot in a detective story can do more things. Yeah, it can be a quest for milk, but it's a quest for milk because they care about the cat they just rescued out of, the, out of the neighbor's trash can. Or they are tired of their spouse nagging them in their marriages on the rocks. But if they are thoughtful like this, in addition to solving this terrible crime spree, they can come home with milk and maybe their spouse won't nag them to death. B-plots have an opportunity to serve multiple aims, multiple agenda, not just have more stuff for the character to do. I do want to make one note about point of view. You will see a lot, a lot of detective stories told in first person. It is not the only way to do it, but in so many cases, it's the best way to do it. Because first person creates two things. One, it creates a level of intimacy and connection between the reader and the character. Because the reader reads I and thinks a little bit of themselves, but also thinks about the person speaking very close to them. Like right next to me. I could turn my head and there's the detective. There's a, there's a very close relationship. But it also creates limitation, boundaries. We're going to talk about those as well. Because in first person... We don't know everything. We all live currently in a in first person ourselves. And right now, as I'm sitting here talking and you're listening wherever you're listening, you don't have, to the best of my knowledge, total global omniscience or even partial global omniscience to know what other people are thinking and doing specifically and correctly. You might have a guess, but your first person limitations sort of put a ceiling on stuff. And it's that ceiling and that tension and that unknownness that drives your day forward, moves the story of your day along. You don't know what somebody's up to, so you ask. You don't know what the plans are, so you ask. You 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 react only to what's in front of you. You're not seeing, you know, the 4D chessboard, 20 moves down. You are thinking specifically and solely of sort of what's around you. First person is an intentional choice when crafting a detective story. It makes somewhat the most sense because by creating that limitation, you're creating an, an incentive for the reader to keep going. Not that it's the only thing helping the reader keep going, but it's certainly a primary thing that the reader relies on to keep going. And honestly, first person is structurally easier in this case because the events are happening to and around and by the character which means you don't have to sit there and think a whole lot about, well, what are these five other people doing? What about this and what about that? It, it pairs down on the, the amount of moving parts so that you can focus and deliver on them rather than cluttering up the whole space with a million points of view and 10 other things happening in this big fantasy level, like head-hopping hoot nanny. First person's intentional. It's a pretty good choice. Please consider it and consider it without like Knocking it without like saying, oh, it's first person, it's, it's weak. It's not. It's just a different tool in our toolbox. On we go. Now, we talked about detectives. Now it's time to talk about the antagonist, the bad guy, the doer of the thing, whatever it might be. There are six elements I want to talk about here with our antagonist. And it doesn't matter what kind of story we're writing. It doesn't matter what kind of mystery we're crafting. These six things are true every time, whether we're in print, whether we're on film, whether we're on TV, whether we're streaming, whether it's audio drama, whatever, six things. Here we go. Your antagonist or antagonists, if there's more than one, they have a reason to commit the crime, to do the problem. And that reason is something they have justified to themselves. We talked about that before. They're doing it because they're saving their family or they're doing it because the world is corrupt and should burn or they're, they're doing it because they need the money and other people don't. They have a reason and they've justified it to themselves. And sometimes in some stories, the detective can attack that justification and get a confession. Sometimes it's, you know, the detective can make a moral appeal and, you know, say, no, you want to be a good person. And then the antagonist gets to say, no. And, and craft some kind of tension there, but the antagonist always has a reason to do or have done the thing they've done. Like, it's, it's never random. It's never just like, shrug, I don't know. There's a reason, and they're aware of it, and they've, they've laid their own mental groundwork. Next. They uh, believe themselves superior in some way, shape, or form due to a trait or quality about themselves. Whatever this superiority is, I'm too smart, I'm going to get away with it. I'm tough, nobody can stop me. I'm smarter than the detective, they'll never find out my method. I'm this, I'm that. My, I'm wealthy, they're never going to come and arrest me. I'm, you know, uncatchable because I leave no fingerprints. Whatever. They believe they are superior due to some trait or quality they have. It might be more than one thing, but there's always a sense of superiority. When taken to uh, an absurd level, it's, I would have gotten away with it if, if it wasn't for these meddlesome kids and that dog. There is a level of presumed superiority. Whether or not that trickles out into arrogance or how the character is by default, that's up to you and that's how you write it. But your antagonist in a mystery has some level of superiority. How you communicate it and what it is is up to you. Their plan, because they have a plan, whether it was to commit the thing or get away with the thing or deal with the thing, they have a plan. And they have a plan to deal with the ramifications of the thing they've done. It doesn't necessarily always have to be this massive Rube Goldberg, you know, Dark Knight, Skyfall level of convenience Hang on, Matt's got a question. Would you elaborate as to why superiority in the antagonist is needed? Yes, I'm coming to why they need to be superior. That's like one point away from now. But I want to talk about the plan first because superiority is what helps them develop their plan. But you, the reader, or I should say you, the writer, don't need to communicate the full length of the plan as it's being planned to the reader. They don't need to see all the parts because the antagonist's plan is revealed through cause and effect rather than delineation, which is a very complicated way of saying the bad guy's plan becomes apparent when it is happening to the detective. When the, when the detective is trapped in the room with the buzzsaw or they're locked in the, in the house that's set on fire, clearly it was the antagonist's plan to lure the detective to the house and set it ablaze. You don't need to have a scene where you're, detect where your villain is going out and buying gasoline because, well, the house is on fire. We know how it got there. The antagonist's plan is revealed through the effects, and the causes are then sussed out by the reader. Now, here's why... I'm mad I'm going to answer your question now. Here's why superiority matters, because it's superiority that allows them to develop the plan in the first place. It allows them to enact the plan... And it is superiority that breeds the character flaw or flaws necessary that allows them to be caught or revealed as the antagonist. So that superiority is their weakness, whether it's hubris or overplanning or ignorance or assumption or... Whatever. They felt themselves untouchable and better than everyone else. And now for whatever reason or number of reasons, that has found to be not the case. That's why you need superiority in your antagonist. Without it, there's never really a clear motivation or enough motivation established for them to commit the crime. If it's just two people on equal footing and one of them stole a thing, the solution is easy. Go get the thing back. But it's still going to come down to why. Why did you steal this thing? There has to be somehow, some way, some level of superiority in that answer. Even if it comes down to I felt I deserve this. That superiority is what helps humanize. That might be the wrong word because I'm not. You don't want your antagonist to be your friend. you it it creates a level of relatability to your antagonist there's still something there that okay i get it that's a human experience that's a human feeling it might not be me and my feeling but it's I, I could see it i can get there that's why you create superiority that's why you create that bridge between characters and reader superiority also helps us root for the hero against them oh wow i hope that jerk gets what's coming to him it's easy it's easy fuel for getting your protagonist on the side of the reader or vice versa. Super useful. Even if it's just like, you know, a quick dismissal, like, Oh, I can't believe it. Like they're playing small or they're, they're playing snotty. There's still enough superiority there. You don't have to go out of your way to make it like a mustache twirling thing. You can, but you don't need to. It's just, they have to be, they have to believe themselves superior and then act as a result of it. And then two more things. One, uh, they are willing in the course of their story to use violence as a tool to achieve their goals, whether that's trapping the detective in the house and setting the house ablaze or threatening someone at gunpoint or uh, exercising privilege to uh, potentially harm or threaten others. You know, I'm rich. I'll bulldoze the orphanage. There's some level of violence, be it violence by self or violence by state or violence by omission. There's some violence that they're willing to do because that's going to help cement them as the bad guy. Sixth thing, last thing for the antagonist. There's a high level of unknownness. There's your technical term for this. Unknownness refers to stuff we don't, we the reader, don't know about the antagonist. It's stuff not presented in the story. Sometimes this unknownness is part of the plan. Like, okay, they've locked the detective in the house and they've set the house on fire. Part of the unknownness is when did they buy the lighter? What do they have with matches? When are they going to do something with, like, is that kerosene? When did they figure out that they wanted to burn the house down? The unknownness is to our advantage. It's good to have unknownness. If we know everything, because the writer spends all their time laying everything out, it's boring. Some element of the unknown is never going to be resolved, and some of it like, when did they get the gasoline? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if they were at the gas station five minutes before the detective rolled up to the house. Doesn't matter if this was a whole Rube Goldberg thing. What matters is the house is on fire, and we care about our detective getting out. And yes, uh, Dexter is a Pretty good example of some level of superiority. Dexter assumes that he's cautious and he won't get caught until he does. And that it's because of the uh, superiority his victims feel that that allow him or them to be caught by him. So, yes, superiority isn't just a matter of, like, assumed arrogance. It's a sense of hubris. It's a sense of... um, invulnerability that can be exploited. The whole point of superiority is that it creates leverage that can be used to move to affect the story. They think they're X, and because of X, it leads them to make an error or a flaw. They're arrogant, so they don't see this coming. They assume I'm beneath them, and I never try, which is why I try, whatever it might be. There's some functionality, some utility to that superiority. Those are your antagonistic basics. Whether we're talking about the orangutan in the room morgue or whether we're talking about Jack the Ripper or whether we're talking about a master jewel thief or the corrupt CEO, you're going to find these six elements here in some way, shape or form for every single killer thief, vagabond, bad guy, monster, demon and mystery antagonist six traits right there. On we go to the next. This brings us to limitation. And yes, by the way, superiority allows them to take risks because of co- because consequences. Either they assume the consequences won't be bad or the consequences won't be existent at all. All of that stuff, superiority, planning, et cetera, can let a story spiral out of control. It can be really tempting, especially when crafting a villain to be like, I'm just going to throw everything at the wall and I'm going to make like a like a Lex Luthor super villain and they're going to have like a million contingencies upon contingencies. And I don't know if you can hear me roll my eyes, but I'm rolling my eyes because that's nice. It's okay. But when you overcomplicate things like that, you're counting on the complication itself to be the interesting thing that keeps us reading. It's because they did X and whatever X is that we're invested. The easier way to handle this, at least for framing a mystery, is by thinking in terms of limitation. What limitations can either writer impose on the story to create tension? We have to figure out who killed the the person, but we're all on this train and we're all snowed in we are all stuck on this island and there's a killer on the loose what limitations can you create can you put in place to increase tension as frequently as possible and then of course you're going to have to have times where you relieve that tension in some way shape or form but your limitations your boundaries on your story how did they you know kill a person in a lock room we're stuck on the orient express we're trapped on the island you know everybody's everybody's a suspect but Uh, It's only these 10 people, whatever. What limitations, 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 limitations. That's where you can demonstrate that cleverness that so many authors are looking for when they get into writing mysteries. They want to show off how smart they are. They want to like get one over on the reader, that kind of nonsense. Don't do it by just making cool, rad sounding people do it because those cool, rad sounding people exist in a place with limitation boundaries. The story's small. It's not the entire planet. It just feels like it's the big deal in their life. It's the whole city could go up in flames, but that seems like the world even though. There's more land, mass, water, and people elsewhere. Think about limitations to create tension. Next, those limitations can only be dealt with if the story is moving. If the story carries forward. Limitations create Movement. They create a need for people to do stuff. Because again, if I can just sit back and solve this crime by Googling a thing and I don't have to go anywhere and it's not very tense and it'll be over in seconds, how big a deal is this mystery to begin with? Like, if I can text you the answer and be done. I didn't have to work very hard. And the whole point of a mystery is to engage the reader and keep them, along with the detective, solving the mystery as frequently as possible. How do your limitations, whatever they might be, create or suggest movement, activity, action, having to do stuff, having to go places, having to try, having to be challenged, movement in a story? Next thing. How do the limitations, whatever they might be, create complications, Within the story, if you find out that there's muddy footprints and then you go get angry at everybody with muddy boots in the, in the story, eventually is somebody with muddy boots going to come kick your ass because they clearly didn't do it, but you're accusing them. Or if we say everybody has to stay locked in the train, what do we do then when we find a second body? How do your limitations that you're imposing create complications for the story. Those complications can be small. They can just raise tension, but they can also be fundamental complications that take the reader's thinking or expectations of the story and put a severe crimp in them, chuck them right out the window. You know, it's, it's a case of, well, I think, you know, Kevin did the murder, but then if Kevin is the second body in the murder mystery, holy shit, what are we going to do? Our limitation Of It has to be one of these people has created a complication because now the guy we thought it was is dead. But this leads, these complications can create focus because if our story is limited, we're stuck on a train, we're stuck on an island, it takes place in a hotel, it takes place all on a weekend, it only involves this group of people, we're focused within our limitations So while we're trying to solve the crime here at the art gallery, we are not worried about what's happening in Australia the same weekend, or we're not worried about some characters we don't know anything about who were never mentioned in the story. We focus where we're at, and that's because the limitations, whether those are limitations of geography or limitations of character or limitations of anything, environment, whatever, give us a reason just to keep our focus here Not everywhere. Like too many limitations if the story comes to a standstill versus not enough limitations because there are no problems. I think I understand your question. Yes. If you give too many limitations, there's not enough movement because everything is too limited. But if you go the other way and there's no real limits and no real boundaries and there's no real tension and there's no real complication, then, yeah, there wouldn't be enough of a problem because it wouldn't be that big a deal. We could just get to it later, fine. There is a sweet spot for limitation and a sweet spot for movement. And, unfortunately, there is no – I mean, way back in the day, there were formula to describe it, but those formula were written by really weird, creepy dudes, and those weird, creepy dudes had very specific – uh, agenda, uh, including but not limited to, hey, I'm gonna go have sex with my brother and then tell you everything you need to know about your mystery novels. Don't even worry about what that who that was as a person. He was weird, but he set up these structures um, about how how a detective should be and not be, and mysteries need to be this way and need to be that way and not need to be that way. M- mainly, he was he was just a nerd who should be shoved in as many lockers as possible. But when you start peeling back the limitations and, and unrestricting story, it becomes less interesting, not because you're just adding more cool stuff, but because the more stuff you add, the more you diffuse our focus. Because now you're bringing in things that are totally unrelated and you keep filling us up and we haven't really gone anywhere forward. We're looking for that forward progress. We're looking for that movement. Limitation facilitates that. I think that's what you're talking about. I think that's what you're asking. If not, let me know and, and I'll give it some more detail. But I'm going to get a mouthful of tea and then we're going to move forward again. This takes us to resolution. This is important because I'm going to, this is more on the writer side than the writing side, if that makes sense. The first thing you have to learn in terms of crafting your mystery is that there is a difference and this is true for a lot of genres but mysteries in particular there's a difference between ending and stopping if a story stops that's not the same as the story being resolved that just means you've you're not dealing with it you you've you've terminated your engagement ending the story is packaging it up with a satisfying resolution the bad guy gets defeated, gets turned over to whatever authorities, I'm making air quotes, authorities handle that kind of thing, justice in some way shape or form is is served. That's ending. It has a satisfying ending or an ending that's potentially satisfying down the road, although that shouldn't always be done. We'll talk about that when we talk about the mistakes. But ending is packaging it up nice neat so that it isn't it's it's over appropriately. Stopping is just kind of like Writing the end after a certain paragraph. It doesn't have a nice resolution. It doesn't feel well organized. It just kind of feels like, oh, oh, that's it. That's the main difference between ending and stopping. That comes down to story organization, knowing what the climax is, how it is resolved, what happens thereafter, and how it how the story ends. Not so much it's down the specifics of, like, then he puts his right hand on his hip and his left hand over it. Like, it doesn't need to be that detailed. It can be, but it doesn't need to be. But you need to be aware that you can't just stop and call it a day. A, a mystery is going to feel infinitely more dissatisfying and unsatisfying to engage with if it stops rather than ends. Next thing. The revelation of whatever it is, who the murderer was, what the crime is, how it was done. The big reveal is the thing that creates closure in the story and moves us towards ending. You have to have that revelation. You have to have that sort of big, tremendous, it was Bob. You know, it, it, you, know you, you, you have to have that. Uh, without a revelation, there's no sense that the mystery has been solved. There's no sense that it's over. Because if you keep delaying the revelation, after a while, you're giving the reader the impression that you're not really sure how to do it. You just keep vamping and hoping they won't suddenly, you know, figure out what's going on that you have no idea how to end it. Revelation must lead to closure. This is most easily identifiable via example in like television shows where it's, you know, take them away, boys, or book them, Dano. And, and after we reveal who the killer is, then, you know, the cops come in, arrest the person, whatever. Or at the end of the fight, they, they leap off the building rather than be caught. Or they die in the rain or something. Revelation leads to closure always. Next thing. What's unknown drives characters' actions and reactions. So, Let's, let me give you a working example of this, and then we'll apply it to mystery. Currently, I'm speaking. I'm trying my best to get this information across to you. I have no idea how it's going. I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants and assuming it's going okay because nobody is yelling at me right now. So it's maybe going okay. The unknownness or my not knowing your response... Whether you're taking notes, whether you're paying attention, whether I'm on in the background, whether you're wondering something, whether you're talking to the screen back and forth and telling me I'm full of shit, the unknown stuff I have no clue about on the other side of this transaction is what's driving my reactions and my actions. I don't know if you're paying attention, so I'm going to keep talking in an engaging way and just have to hope. And you don't know what I'm currently doing over here with my hands. And maybe that's not distracting you to some degree or you don't know what's coming next. So you keep, you know, you stay tuned and you pay attention and you get ready to take more notes or whatever. Unknownness, question marks or variables in the flow of information allow for the story to develop. The detective doesn't have to know everything, doesn't have to be perfect. The detective can make a mistake. The detective can make mistakes all goddamn day. The detective can misinterpret things. The supporting characters can misinterpret things. The killer can misinterpret things. The, the Anything can be misinterpreted. The unknown, whatever it might be, whether it's a character or an action or a scene or a moment, the unknown thing prompts story to move forward. Just like your questions in chat... Lead me to try and resolve them, but I don't know what your questions are until you ask them. Unknown drives us forward. Next thing. The idea of justice is not purely limited to uh, a Eurocentric legal situation. In order to get justice, we don't always need cops and we don't always need, you know, somebody in cuffs being taken away. Sometimes justice isn't punitive or or retribution. Sometimes justice is just satisfaction. Sometimes justice is letting things go, reaching a different accord, letting the guy, you know, die in the rain. Justice is not limited in terms of resolution. It doesn't always have to be, take them away, boys. Even if it's expected, doesn't mean you have to deliver it. What is important, sixth thing, is that whatever consequences happen to detective, to antagonist, to other characters, to anybody, those consequences must be natural and logical relative to the story. Natural consequences are consequences that seem to make sense and seem possible relative to how the world is developed. So a natural consequence after, you know, um, having your sidekick shot by the bad guy, your natural consequence is to have the the the, the shot character collapse on the ground with a with a, with a wound. Natural. Unnatural consequence would be all of a sudden they start floating in space because shooting them with a bullet was the magic thing they needed because all of a sudden now they're supernatural. Logical is relative to the situation that just happened. Something is happening in response. They've been shot. Now they're bleeding. They were cornered. Now they're fighting back. Logical, reasonable, Natural consequences always have to occur as part of resolution, even if the natural consequence of I don't want to be caught, and then the guy yeets himself off a building. But natural and logical consequences, no matter the genre, no matter the subgenre, no matter the story, they're gonna make the story feel more impactful when it comes to resolution. Whatever it might be. That's resolutions. On we go to the next. Which is where we start getting more detailed, because now it's time to break down some mystery subgenres. But first, another mouthful of tea. Any questions so far? I have to be honest, I initially thought I was just talking to me and like the chat bot. So I'm, I'm thankful for a pause, but questions so far, fire away. cool. On we go. Remember our earlier genealogy list? We're going to break it down individually. This is where we get detailed. Here we are. The gentleman detective, considered by many to be sort of the pillar of the detective story, sort of like the go-to, it's best to do it this way. A gentleman detective is distinguished by all of the following traits. There is some level of privilege whether it's wealth, whether it's social standing, whether it's intelligence, whether it's something, there is some level of privilege that separates the gentleman detective from everybody else. Frequently, that uh, privilege is made separate and works in conjunction with a level of class superiority. The gentleman detective is almost always a noble person, whether it's Lord Peter Whimsey, or the the Marquess of um, the Marquess of the Sixth Barony of uh, Moldova, or whatever. There is some level of class superiority commented on and put out as separate from the privilege. It isn't just enough to be a noble person; it's a noble person who is noble and has privilege. The two things are partners rather than synonyms. Next thing, it's called a gentleman detective for a reason they're frequently male identifying. We could even take it further and say they're typically straight white cis men. Because well they're the gentleman detective. They're supposed to be better than everyone else. So what's better than a straight white cis man? The gentleman it, it, it isn't. Don't You know what I mean? I think you know what I'm saying. Gentleman detectives are are old white dudes. Which also means that there is patriarchy everywhere in a gentleman detective story sometimes it's leaned into, sometimes it's pulled back from, but it's always present. Whether it's the love interest being a straight woman, whether it's the any woman in a story thought of as a, in sort of a second class status. Oh, don't worry your pretty little head, I'll go solve the mystery, or whether it's just the assumption that men are better. Period. Patriarchy runs like an undercurrent through gentleman detective stories. It's not good. If you're ever looking to write a gentleman detective and you want to challenge anything, challenge any of those things, privilege, class superiority, male identification, and patriarchy, you will you will go far playing around and fiddling and adjusting those or subverting those elements. Next thing. The gentleman detective is frequently European, frequently from uh, one of the Western allied countries of World War II, whether that's the UK or Belgium, or France, or maybe one of the occupied territories, but they're frequently European, and they're frequently dudes who have been afforded some level of comfort based on their privilege and class. T- the timeline doesn't entirely matter. I'm using World War II as a window because that's the, the the war period of the 20th century is a very common frame for the gentleman detective story whether we're talking about World War I or World War II or the the Weimar Republic era in between or the post-World War II climate, European white dudes were frequently the gentleman detective. However, they're not always alone. Sometimes they're supported by a secondary character, a sidekick, a Watson, a love interest, a girl Friday, a buddy, whatever, there's usually one of them and they're subordinate. They're in there in the story for comic relief, for love interest, maybe for bouncing ideas around in order to develop the story, like they have a conversation, but that secondary character is generally played off or written off as being less intelligent because again, like we talked about, it's the traits and skills of our detective that'll that only allow them to make the connections to solve the case. A gentleman detective is sometimes supported by a secondary character to assist in this. The mystery, the case, the problem of the story, has not been assigned to them. They didn't have a boss tell them to do this. They weren't handed this file folder at the office. Nobody came in and called them. They just sort of stumbled onto it. Oh, we're here at this croquet party, and oh, God, the, someone's been murdered. Now I guess I have to do something. Or in sending their manservant out on errands, the manservant reports that the bank was robbed, and that's why they couldn't get their chores done. The mystery is not assigned to the gentleman detective. This helps perpetuate the idea that the gentleman detective, because of its privilege, because of its class, because of its patriarchy, because of its whatever, has the luxury of being able to not give a shit about the actual like way the world works and focus on the mystery. Like, oh, I'm so rich, I don't have to worry about that. I'll go solve this crime because I need something to do. It, it's frustrating. It's real frustrating. Uh, It's one of those things where once you see it, once it gets pointed out to you, you can't really go back and see the gentleman detective differently because it just screams rather than, oh, they're interested in mystery. It's, oh, they don't have anything else to do. Like they're doing this crime thing as like a time killer, which is unfair to the people affected by the crime. The mystery is never assigned to them. Lastly, significantly, Whatever character arc your gentleman detective has, it is singular and temporary. Singular meaning it's just going to persist for this story. And temporary is it might not carry over. And if it does, it's very minor. Like, oh, I'll say, I'll tell my secondary character that I love her because she is my love interest. And then at the start of the next book, we'll probably go right back to the snarky fighting that everybody loved so much in our early book. The character arcs aren't very persistent and aren't very story dominant because the gentleman detective, because of its construction, at least according to many authors, doesn't have anything to change. They're good. They're privileged. They're white. They're dudes. They're in charge. What what's with all this growing and transforming? That just seems wasteful and wrong. So instead our character arcs are temporary and tiny. That's the gentleman detective. All our mysteries that we're about to talk about from here on out stem from this. This is the root ball our tree is going to grow from. So let's start it growing. What's next? The juvenile detective. This is your Bobsy Twins, Hardy Boys, Encyclopedia Brown, uh, even Veronica Mars, um, Buffy, depending on how you want to read it. A juvenile detective has one single elevated trait, one quality about them. Sometimes it's intelligence. Sometimes it's stubbornness. Sometimes it's uh, an unassuming countenance. But there's one single elevated trait they have, whatever it might be. In a juvenile detective story, it's lower stakes. It's a murder But we're not worried about a serial killer. It's just we're worrying about this murder and this crime in this situation. Or it's a smaller crime overall. Who robbed the school cafeteria? It's not exactly going to, you know, there's no massive global conspiracy. There's no, like, town hall corruption. There's no femme fatale in the fifth grade kind of thing. It's lower stakes. The danger that arises is contextual to the story. Like, we think it's the bully in our class, so our bully gets in our face about this. But in the next story and down the road, the bully might not be a factor. The danger is just happening because of this investigation and because of this immediate crime. Next, the complexity of the case, of the challenge, scales with your main character's age because it's a juvenile You are not going to take your 11-year-old Encyclopedia Brown and suddenly stick them in uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles or uh, a John Sanford Prey novel or anything written by a Finnish or Scandinavian author because that stuff's just too heavy and too complex for Encyclopedia Brown. As your character gets older, and this is true universally in other things, but as your character gets older, you can scale up the complexity of the mystery, scale up the number of clues, scale up the number of steps, but ultimately it depends on your your main character's age. Just the determination of, oh, you're 18, so Veronica Mars has more access to things, more interaction with things, more dealing with things than the Bob C. Twins do or, um, you know, a preteen would or something. Next, one of the ways you can see the genealogy and the dissemination of things is that in a lot of these subgenres, because they, they take root from Gentleman Detective, there's a lot of overlap. And one of the ways juvenile detective overlaps with gentleman detective is that your juvenile detective is sometimes supported by a secondary character, sometimes multiple secondary characters. Best friends, snarky neighbors, sisters, siblings, brothers, cousins, family members, pets. There's some kind of character in and around the main character, usually as like, like a valve to release some tension or develop the story in some way or assist in some way. They're there to help move things along. Not always, but when they're there, they have a function. Let's talk about these character arcs, though, because in a juvenile detective, there's going to be some kind of character arc. They're going to do stuff. We're going to learn about them. However, a juvenile detective character arc is not transformative, not typically they don't suddenly learn to become better different people. They don't suddenly get over their major problems, but they do experience them. So maybe your character arc isn't um, isn't learning to be a better person and, and respect the elderly and their wisdom. That would be a transformative character arc if we start off the show or start off the story ignoring grandma and then finally sitting down with grandma at the end and going, okay, grandma, tell me a story. However, we're not going to transform here. So we are going to encounter Grandma and say, oh, God, our stories are so annoying. And then when we get to the end of the book, when we sit down and go, okay, it's time to go talk to Grandma, oh, uh, her stories are so annoying. And that similarity shows us that there's not really a whole lot of character development room in Juvenile Detective. Because a juvenile detective story isn't built around the character becoming a significantly different character. It's more about the character accomplishing significantly different tasks. Solving this crime, solving that problem, overcoming this obstacle. Different cases, different efforts, but almost always the same character. Which means that the arc they're on is going to be temporary and singular, just like it was for Gentleman Detective. It's just occurring within the space of this story it may have lasting ramifications in the sense of like oh well i introduced my best friend in the last book now they're here again it's not really an arc but a sense of like i've learned a valuable lesson about my dad and then going forward it doesn't really seem to come up it can there's nothing wrong with i should point out there's nothing wrong if it does come up if it does transform if it does change it's just not common that doesn't make it bad if it happens. It's just infrequent. And if you were looking to tweak or fiddle with things, that is definitely a spot where you can put your own spin on this. Your character arcs are non-transformative and they're temporary. But let's let's move further down. Let's see what else we got. So if that's juvenile, the other half of that was pulp. Pulp dominated in the early 20th century. These are the things you see in Black Mask magazine, Detective Magazine, Thrilling Tales, the pulps. A pulp detective is dominated by action beats, usually punching, shooting, driving, aggressively sexing, doing stuff. Action beats drive the story forward. Uh, There's a reason why one of the unspoken rules for writing pulp is when in doubt, fight something. Because it's an action-oriented story, generally the pulp detective does not get a lot of clues in the course of their story. So that while they have a clue economy, it's not very big. Maybe instead of like six, they have four. And that's because clues aren't the primary issue in pulp detective. It's about action, because action beats drive the story. However, with fewer clues and more action, the danger compounds. We punched one guy in in an early chapter. Now we got to fight two. Now we got to fight four. Now the people I pissed off before are back. It's getting harder and harder to keep going, which is why there are more and more action beats as we move along. And because the danger compounds, because things get worse over time as it goes, the stakes are. Large-scale, usually global. Oh, my God, the, the zombies could take over. Who's going to stop the good guys? Who's going to do this and who's going to do that? Large-scale stakes are super common. And much like juvenile detective and gentleman detective, sometimes they're supported by one or more secondary characters. Usually these characters have utility, like that's my friend the pilot, or that's my friend the, the, the arms smuggler, or that's my friend the attractive lady I banter with or something like that. They have a utility to the character and a tangential relationship to the story. Again, character arcs remain not transformative and are temporary unless they are incredibly substantial. Like, I'm going to fall in love and marry my love interest, or I'm going to lose my arm in the war. Unless it's substantial and really persistent for the character, the arc is temporary. I'm going to be nice to you this time, but next time we talk, we're enemies again, or we're going to have a weird relationship again. Temporary, unless substantial. On we go to the next. Now we get into the smaller, more recent subdivisions. Here's hard-boiled detective. This is the noir. This is the private eye. This is hard-boiled is just fiction where the emotional weight of decisions and consequences weigh on the character. Pulp was driven by the action beat. Hard-boiled detectives are driven by the investigation. They're trying to do a thing for reasons. And so the attempt to resolve the issue drives the story forward. Go looking for the clues. Go get into situations about who could have done this and why. Dig into the investigation. One of the most common ways to interpret or or understand the hard-boiled detective is what's called knight-errant theory, which is... They're just a person roaming the countryside in an office in San Francisco or, you know, at the coffee shop or in the small town or in the big city. They're just somebody good in a place that is typically not very good who people can turn to for help. They're the errant knight, the knight errant. They are uh, Galahad with dirt under their nails. They are uh, a character driven by a moral code despite a world unwilling to comfort them. And, much like with our other detectives, the dangerous compound. The problems I cause initially that were small here are bigger later on. Danger gets worse as the story continues. Hard-boiled detectives, specifically in with noir but also everywhere else, don't necessarily operate around the same kind of binary of all good or all bad. There are varying levels of morality in hard-boiled fiction because the world is actually, I don't know if you know this, full of people with variable morality scales. Whether they're good or bad, or sometimes good and sometimes bad, or a little bit of both, that's incredibly common with hard-boiled detectives. Next, secondary characters, when there are any, are going to serve the plot first. Whether it's the main plot or a side uh, a side plot, the character, whatever secondary character is there, whether it's the creepy bookseller or the strange goon or the corrupt detective looking for a bribe or the strange lady who's kind of flirty but kind of weird, they're in the story not so much to assist the detective, unlike Juvenile and Pulp. They're there to accomplish something in the story first. We have to get the jeweled falcon before the other one does. We have to get in there and find out what he knows. We have to get a bribe. We have to do this. We have to do that. Secondary characters serve plot first before they do anything else significantly with a hard-boiled detective, is the character changes less than the world around them. If you want to preserve the knight-errant's knighthood, if you want to preserve this idea that they're a good person in a bad world, they can't change so much. You know, sure, they'll change their shirt, they'll change their tie, they'll, they'll switch to a different glass of a different alcohol to drink, but in terms of who they are as a person, they don't change or sacrifice their moral code because if they did, they wouldn't be the knight anymore. The world changes more than the character and that world in hard-boiled fiction is always in motion. And because of its setup and dynamics, very little of it changes the corrupt are always corrupt. The rich are always rich. The have nots always have not motion and, and lack of change dominates hard-boiled fiction, whether it's a lack of change in the world or lack of change in characters or lack of change in outcomes. Not changing things creates a level of tension. If there's more emphasis, Matt asks, if there's more emphasis on detectives' interiority, why are secondary characters for plot first and foremost? It's That's a great question because... If, you if you're focusing your main character on how they're thinking and feeling and why they're doing what they're doing, you, you need to get over and create some inertia to move the story along because otherwise you're going to constantly be jarring in and out of what a character is thinking and then, oh, by the way, I got to go do a story. You facilitate and smooth that out by giving secondary characters more plot lifting to do. Ah, there's, you know, I'm sitting here in my office wondering, like, how am I going to solve this? And then knock, knock, knock. There's somebody at the door. Oh, it's somebody who's giving me more information about the story. It's a little convenient by today's standards, but you can disguise some of that convenience by stretching scenes out or shuffling things around. But the more you focus on how a character thinks and feels, your main character, you're going to need something to kind of capitalize and catalyze the plot when you need to. Secondary characters are a great choice for this. Also, secondary characters get less detail here. They're detailed specific to the needs of the story. The reason we have Sidney Longstreet or Peter Lorre describe the way they do is because of not so much who they are as beings existing in the greater whole, but because they're part of the story. Why we made the, the lady all sexy and flirty is because it's accomplishing something in this story, even if she's going to be sexy and flirty everywhere. It gives them some dimension. It's a good question. It's a very good question. On we march to the next permutation. The procedural detective. Uh, These are your cop shows. These are your cop books, your 89th precincts, your Don Winslow, you know, badge, swagger, copaganda, let's go do it for America and the flag, and all cops are good people and not at all the violent enactors of the state much like hardboiled a procedural detective is dominated by the investigation uh, nowhere is this more apparent than in the boomer friendly shows of various alphabet listed government organizations it's all about the investigation and the lab and the weird quirky person on our team and the, and the you know the the charismatic one and the tough as nails one and the rule breaker or the rookie or whatever smaller tropes are there the procedural is all about the investigation, figuring out who could have done it and the reader following along. However, the procedural detective, out of all these flavors of detective, they're the most cop. They're the most officious. They're the most lawful. And I don't mean lawful in a good way, I mean they're full of laws. So 1312 were appropriate, friends and comrades. And because they're the most lawful or they're most litigious or the most censorious that way, there are very clear delineations between here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. The clearer you make that distinction, the easier it is to stay procedural because there's never really a lot of distraction. There's never really a lot of noise to signal, if that makes sense. Also in a procedural, there aren't many clues There's a lot of discussion and and interpretation of the clues that there are, but there's not really a lot of clues. Like if you go watch any episode of like NCIS, you're never going to get more than four clues. In part, that's because it's a 48 minute show. And in part, that's because your audience probably doesn't have developed an attention span or an expectation that there's going to be more clues and some of them might be distractions. So there are very few clues. And ultimately your climax in a procedural detective story is a confrontation between the clear good and the clear bad. Sometimes this is a fight. Sometimes this is a shootout. Sometimes it's a running thing, a car chase, a screaming match, something. There's a confrontation as your story's climax. And your secondary characters, like in Hardboiled, serve the A and B plot first. Your quirky lab character, your nerdy you know, expert who comes in for five minutes. Uh, sometimes there's a, Matt says, there's a very special episode ugh, where the criminal is sympathetic for the cop to look sad at the end. Yes. Um, because sometimes in an effort to make the cop palatable, we, we muddy the waters. Sometimes we disguise the 12 in our thirteen twelve. Sometimes we want to make it look like these are real people with real consequences, but we know what's going to happen because the institutions don't change. Which is a great way of segueing into the idea that the mechanics of investigation always work. It might take a while. They might need more data. They might need to do a thing or get a thing or, or just spend more time, but the investigation is always Accurate. They eventually always do the right amount of code hacking or DNA testing or printing off of papers or looking at monitors or staring out the window or whatever, and the investigation always works. And that's part of what creates this reinforcing loop between these secondary characters are here to do that investigation. They're here to do the mechanics and the mechanics always work. So we're always justifying the need for our lab person to be quirky. They, they, they require each other in order to move forward. The satisfaction of the story comes not in getting it right necessarily, but Seeing it be right and seeing the crime stopped. The bad guy gets what's coming to them. One way or the other. That's where your satisfaction comes from. Which is not always the most satisfying thing in the world, but there we are. That's what's up. Shall we move on from procedurals? To cozies. Oh, All right. Just a, a disclaimer. I don't like cozies. I don't like cozies at all. Cozies are not great, and I'm going to tell you why. So, a cozy detective, a cozy is a very low stakes, high urgency detective story. That means there's a crime, but it's not really a big deal. We're just here to, you know, hang out and have fun. And it's it's a big deal when it needs to be for the sake of the story. But it's very low. It's 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 a big deal to solve it, but it's not like, oh my god, there's danger on every corner. It's safe. It's a it's a baby proof story. The corners have been rounded off. It's covered in some bubble wrap. It's not too sharp. It's not too spicy. It's not too hot. It's not too messy. It just kind of, ah, safe, tame, dull. And the number one beat that drives a cozy detective. Miss Marple is not a cozy. Uh, Miss Marple is a gentleman detective made female. But cozies are dull. Because the primary beat that drives a cozy is dialogue. Talking. Characters talking. Usually snarky. Usually funny. Usually what's referred to in publishing is gal pal sarcastic. It's irritating. It's insipid. It's trying too hard to be both funny and relatable. It's not great. Combine the dialogue and the over-talking with low stakes and high urgency. Urgency is just the need of like, we have to solve this story. It's a big deal because there's nothing else going on in this manuscript. Gives us a clear chance to see that there is very definitely good people, very definitely bad people, and this is what we have. It's very simple by comparison. There are typically few clues. Why? Because if we increase the number of clues, then we have to kind of increase some stakes or change the urgency or add some complexity. And it wouldn't be very safe and cozy then if we had to like, you know, do a little bit of work and do a little bit of depth. Cozy detective stories are detective stories, but they're not as deep or as messy or as dark or as grim or as uh, fractal. As your other forms. Confrontation is still your primary climax because it's the most evocative. A big moment where the, the killer corners us, or we walk into the room and go, We know you did it, Kevin. Okay. It's the most simple, it's the most straightforward, which in turn can make it the most dull. And again, much like with our hard boiled and procedural and stuff. Your primary character, your secondary characters are going to serve the plot. They're there to be suspects. They're there to be, you know, characters who take up space that you get to write about. They're not there to develop the great and world history log. They're not there to, you know, give you backstory on the detective unless it's absolutely critical. They're there just for the functionality of the story. In a cozy the big thing that drives the story along is not the mystery itself. It's not the character's ambition to solve the crime. It's the relationship of the character to other, the main character to other characters. So if your detective is the one lady in her book club and the book club has gone off to the secluded hotel and there was a murder at the hotel then your relationship with the ladies in the book club are part of what drive the story forward because maybe one of them is the killer. And treading in on that relationship and finding out that we all really never liked Mildred and we suspect Mildred is the killer, then that relationship is fuel and currency we can spend and expend and tread on to develop our story. However, it's important to know that in a cozy, there's almost always a positive outcome bad guys get what's coming to them. The The body count or injury count is pretty low. And what injuries are there are not terribly long-term and traumatic. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, I got, you know, I split my lip and I broke my shoe and I make a joke about it and we move on. There's almost always a positive, almost always a low stakes outcome. And because it's low stakes and because it's almost universally positive it feels in the long run like the cozy doesn't ultimately matter because the characters persist this is why you get a series of 20 plus easily 20 plus books in a cozy series because the characters are always there And sometimes the characters come with best friends or gal pals or pets or siblings or children or or caretakers or coworkers or somebody who just is, you know, this is where you get like the really unfortunate gay best friend nonsense where that secondary character is there just to be the butt of the joke or to be the outlet for other storytelling stuff. They have no real relevance or ability. Sometimes they're damseled in the story and they're, they're held at gunpoint or something, but ultimately they persist more than the specific plot does just because in one book we rescue we we stopped a jewel thief and then two books later we stop a murderer three books down from there we're stopping an art thief and it, the other stuff happened but it didn't like entirely matter each story is a little bit too isolated cozies are nice i'm sure they pay the bills but i honestly think that anybody who can write a cozy should push themselves to write something else Push deeper into detective fiction. Try something hard-boiled. Try something straightforward. Try something, hell, even try something procedural. But if you're if you're if you're doing the cozy, your training wheels are on. Take your training wheels off. See where else you can go. Where else can you go? How about a reluctant detective? The reluctant detective has a lot of overlap. There's high crossover here because any detective can be made a reluctant detective because the primary issue in a reluctant detective is that they didn't choose the case. It finds them. They didn't want to be involved. They're not even supposed to be here today. And in fact, initially, the main character sees no relevance, no reason to get invested. They're on vacation. It's not a big deal. Somebody else will handle it. But remember, back at our our early rules of detecting, the main character, your detective, is the only character who can solve it. But because they perceive no relevance initially, there's a lot of resistance or reluctance to get involved. However, over the course of a reluctant detective story, actions and reactions escalate, eventually forcing the main character to get involved. So, the revelation, hey, Kevin did it. That's what's up. Here are the clues. That revelation is earned because everything escalated up to that point. And because everything escalated, all the risk has compounded. Once a detective gets into the story, danger picks up. Whether it's physical risk, emotional risk, social risk, whatever, danger picks up. Your secondary characters, whomever they might be, however many there might be, are the reason why the main character comes to interact with the case or the the crime or the problem at all. They get invited to the island. They're on the train hanging out, and then, oh, by the way, this happens. They're, They're just there on vacation. It's part of the convenience and the hand wave of the conflict finding the main character. It's almost always facilitated by a secondary character. Whether or not that secondary character dies is variable, but it's... Pre- they need the detective and ultimately the detective needs the case, but it's not necessarily the same thing. However, with a secondary character in a reluctant detective story, their inability to solve the case is the character is their main character's opportunity. So, um, an off duty cop, all cops are bastards who, gets brought into a case and then says, Hey, I gotta go talk to my friend the detective, because I can't solve this one. Mr. Holmes, I can't make heads or tail of what, you know, this German word on the floor means. What do I do? Your secondary character's inability creates opportunity for your main character. That is your primary formula for a reluctant detective. But let's move on to something a little bit slightly different. The urban fantasy detective is currently vying as your most popular Current detective type because magic. Ooh. In urban fantasy, whether we're talking about wizards or witches or warlocks or necromancers or this, that, or the other, magic is a hand wave. It's a catch-all. It is the salute it is the solver of problems, but also possibly the instigator of problems. It is a tool that allows investigation to occur. It is one of the primary reasons urban fantasy detectives work. They do shit that other people can't do so that it's not just a, I'm making air quotes, boring detective story. However, because it's magic and because there's a lot of stuff going on, the world building of urban fantasy is critical. Whether we're talking about one city and developing its supernatural reality or whether we're talking about the world or different realms of fairies and whatnot, world building is critical. If you fail to develop the world in urban fantasy, shit gets boring fast. And again, there's very high crossover with things like reluctant detective, cozy, um, even procedural, depending on how you write it. You can weave urban fantasy and urban fantasy elements in and out of all these other parts. Urban fantasy is also therefore very easy to scale Our first books are the detective just figuring shit out. And by, you know, 10 or 12 books in, they're dealing with global level threats. You can scale up urban fantasy pretty easily. However, there's also a danger in scaling it up because if you scale up too fast, all of a sudden, like a book ago, we were just dealing with like a local problem. And now all of a sudden there's like a a deity stomping across the ground and I'm expected to believe that the detective can stop them. Be careful with your power scale. Be careful with how quickly you ramp things up in urban fantasy. Likewise, your A and B plots braid together pretty consistently and pretty easily. Yes, our case is the main plot, our A plot, but our B plot is what the character is going through, and so often that's a second case or a relationship with another character that invades or fits in with the main plot, and everything ultimately tangles together. Your clues lead to action beats. So I find a thing and that immediately puts me into a circumstance or circumstances where there's danger, where there's something I have to do that will have consequences. I find those muddy boots. I accuse that guy. He punches me in the nose. Clues lead to action beats. That's going to make each clue feel consequential and material and important. Your world building is going to persist from... Book to book to book, because this is often urban fantasy more than anything else, is framed out in series. Nobody is ever really thinking just one book. It's one book's great, but I have plans for two, three, four, five more because your world building persists because of how much detail you put into it in order to establish that it has this, the architecture to support all these individual cases or problems for our detective. And of course, like everywhere else, first person is incredibly common with urban fantasy. That doesn't make it bad or wrong. It's just that's, that's the common go-to. It creates that relationship. It creates that intimacy. It can keep the reader engaged. That's urban fantasy. Now we're going to cover how to fix some of this stuff when you mess it up. The, by the way, this is our last section. I know we're running a little late. Would you say that urban fantasy is kind of what pulp used to be, but for contemporary literature? Yes. Urban fantasy today is what pulp used to be. Urban fantasy is the new pulp. You, when, how do I say this? Yeah, urban fantasy is the new pulp. And to bring pulp into the modern or to modernize pulp alongside it, you generally tend to see more. ...fixed elements. It's definitely pulp because it takes place in the 1920s. It's definitely pulp because of this kind of relationship. It, it goes hard trying to distinguish itself from urban fantasy. But yeah, urban fantasy is the modern pulp. Not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it is common. And one of the hard parts in urban fantasy is that you see what other successful urban fantasy series are doing... And in an effort to make your own, you don't do a good enough job filing off the serial numbers. Ah, this fantasy detective has this thing. I will also have that thing. Or I'll have the same thing, but I'll, I'll change it slightly. You've got to make enough uh, derivation and deviation for your stuff to stand on its own. It's okay if, it's, if you were inspired by reading this other series or you were you, you like these elements, but don't just clone them wholesale. Take the time, sort them out. Start off that way. It's what first drafts are for. Go ahead. But eventually you've got to iterate and develop on your own. So let's talk about how to fix things. And there's, I got to tell you, a very cramped slide coming, strap in. In a mystery, you commonly run into uh, problems where there are too many things or too few things or what are called the three being problems, so maybe let's do the being problems first. So you're, you're, one of your most common mystery issues is the writer being too clever, trying too hard to like sneak one past the reader, counting on the fact that the reader is like mega savvy, and having this idea in their head that they don't want the reader to figure it out. They want As if figuring it out would deprive the reader of satisfaction which is a misunderstanding of what readers do and how readers are because there's always going to be some percentage of your reading population that figure it out. They are too savvy. They are too overexposed to writing. They're too used to stuff. They've seen a million things. They're pretty clever. They, they catch on. Trying to sneak something past your readership creates an adversarial relationship that you will not recover from long term. Don't try and be too clever. Don't try and sneak one past everybody. Don't try and force the surprise. Tell the best story you can. And if some people figure it out and they figure it out on page five, great. Other people figure it out on page 205, sure. Other people don't figure it out to the last sentence, sure. Everybody's going to do it differently. It's not up to you to mandate or dictate when they're supposed to resolve it. Don't be overly clever. Likewise, you don't want to be too complex. Hyper-complicating the story with a million clues and a dozen red herrings, and it could be this, and what about that, and here's this plot thread, and I'm going to mention this now, because in five books I'm going to bring it back. And then there's this backstory, because I want you to think this character's cool. And then there's this thing, and this thing, and that thing, and this, that, and the other. And you're just crowding up the story. The more clutter you're creating in your world-building the more it's hard for the reader or the harder it is for the reader to parse what's important. Don't be overly complex. Next being too disorganized. Now sometimes being too clever and being too complex isn't enough and we need somebody who's going to just throw everything at the wall. We're going to have this scene and this subplot and this thing and this backstory and this element. And I got to bring in this world beat and here's some character stuff. And then here's the crime and here's a couple red herrings. And then, oh, here's a backstory and here's a flashback and here's this and here's that. And it's all just kind of mishmashed together. It's too disorganized. Organize your story. Detective stories, above all else, even more than fantasy stories, thrive on organization. It doesn't take much effort to sit down. And map these things out and follow things through. Which leads us to the too many, too few problems. Common issues, too many characters, can't figure out who's an actual suspect versus who's just there taking up space. Too many scenes. Why is the story taking so long? Too many locations. We're traveling all over the place. Not that we need to do this in the fewest number of things possible, like a game of name that tune, but do we really need to be doing as much traveling as we are? Why is each scene? Why is each location important? Too many what ifs. You're, you're giving your reader a chance to, or your detective too much speculation. It could be this, it could be that, it could be this. Yes, well, it could also be, you know, a trained robot assassin. It could be, you know, germ warfare. It could be an invisible ninja. It could be, it could be, it could be, it could be. And the flip side, too many explanations. Ah, Watson, let me tell you exactly what kind of cigarette ash this is because I have profoundly studied all kinds of cigarette ash. That way I get to show you how smart I am while also being hyper-specific about this story. Too many explanations make it look like you think the reader's stupid. Too many explanations mean you put a lot of words in that character's mouth that don't necessarily assist the story. It might help solve the plot, but it doesn't necessarily make your character more relatable. Too much explanation kills your story. Likewise, Too much coincidence kills your story. I knew he had a brother, and that's him, because I just know these things. Too many coincidences leave too many things underexplained. Now, usually when you have too many coincidences, you just have too much stuff to begin with, and you've tried very hard to tie it all together, but not always the case. However, too many coincidences leave the story feeling disorganized, which we don't want. Likewise, too many options. The story could be this, it could be that. And it's Again, it's a permutation of the what ifs, whereas the what ifs are more abstract, the options are more practical. We could go investigate this part, we could investigate that part, we could do this, we could go here, we could talk to this person. We have stuff we could do, but we don't really feel like we have any organized momentum. Those are the two muches. Here are the two fews too little world building. I'm not saying that everything needs to be this big, giant fantasy world with, with kingdoms and continents and 600 years of backstory. But just to say, like, I'm in an office. Now I'm in a car. Now I'm over here at my apartment. Now here's the murder scene. And you're just kind of breezing everybody along and not giving the reader that cinematic mental movie experience. Too little world building makes the story feel unimportant. Too little or too few motivations the character has also helps the story feel undercooked. Why is the detective doing it? Well, I guess because they're a detective and that's what detectives do. It's not enough. Not enough at all. Your motivation has to carry your detective forward through the course of the story. Whether it's, I've got to solve this thing because I can't let it go, or i got to solve this thing because somebody's counting on me, or i got to solve this thing because it's the right thing to do, or whatever. There's always motivation. Make it apparent. Make it clear. Have it run through everything. Too little risk or too few challenges mean that the character isn't really working. It's not hard for them to do it. They're just they're just sitting there. Again, like we talked about, if I can solve this story by texting, why hasn't anybody else? Too little risk and challenge is often indicative of an author afraid to put the character in a hard situation. Maybe that's a writing thing. They're not sure how to write a difficult scene. They don't want to, they don't know how to write that. They don't know how to express confusion or express uncertainty. So they just don't, they always put their character (coughs) Sherlock Holmes in a situation where, um, they always seem to know things and it Requires authors outside the mainstream to start giving your character, like when they enter public domain or whatever, start giving your character actual challenge because they understand that character growth through challenge is more satisfying than just seeing people do stuff. Likewise, too little development makes a character feel flat. If they just do the case and then go home and we don't really care, we don't really learn anything about them, feels flat. Too little investigation makes the crime seem too simple. Too few or too little decision-making makes the crime feel immaterial. If it's just, okay, yeah, he did it. Okay, I'm done. It's, it's not great. Who cares? we got to make it care. There has to be an important why. Why did the character do this? What was their cause? What's their goal? What are they trying to do or accomplish? If I'm not making decisions as a detective to resolve this, why am I here? What's going on? Those are your common manuscript issues. Too much, too few, too clever, too complex, too organized. And that's on top of the typical usual issues in first drafts and second drafts and even third drafts of overwriting, underdeveloping, vague pronouns, comma splices, grammar, character introductions, development, all this stuff. I'm not highlighting this to scare you off. I'm not highlighting this to make you think that writing a mystery is a bad thing. It's a great thing. Mysteries are fucking rad. They're awesome. But if you're going to do them, organize them. If you're going to do them, structure them in a way that it makes sense. Work an outline. Figure things out. Create your clue economy. Develop your character. Challenge your character. Make the plot something they have to like work at and do stuff with. Don't just roll it out and blink and have it be done. Mystery's difficult. It takes time. And I do think, to go back a minute to cozies, I do think a lot of writers under-challenge themselves by writing cozies because they know they're safe audiences. There are people who read cozies and love cozies, and they're not going to be bothered by reading anything heavier, grittier, darker, more substantial. So if I just write to this audience, I'll have... I'll have a career and that's fine. That's that's sure. That's exactly what you can do. However, if you're able to do that so much and so consistently, maybe you should consider doing more. That's that's where I'm going to leave that part at the very least because I'm sure somebody's going to hear this and then, you know, come at me for knocking cozies. Hey, you could do better. That's all I'm going to say. Are there any other questions? Otherwise, we'll get out of here for the night. Uh, obligatory question what category does "Miss" was knives out fall into all right knives out is knives out's a little tricky because knives out is arguably gentleman detective because of Benoit Blanc because of uh, um, Daniel Craig's character but at the same time knives out is also uh, procedural but it's it's procedural by character we're learning about the relationships between characters and it's more it's more of the old fashioned kind of gentleman detective but it doesn't hit the privilege is not the detective the privilege is the 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 thrombley family so there's still elements of class and there's still elements of privilege but it's not given to the detective it's it's shift it's subverted that way there's still it there but it's it's the character's not the detective likewise there's some level of reluctant detective to it because the other cops, Lakeith Stanfield, and the other guy whose name I'm blanking on, bring Blanc in to resolve this. They need him. They need his help. So he's also hired to investigate, which makes it in part procedural. You can straddle a lot of fences. It's not like you have to hitch your wagon to one thing and say, oh, "No, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing a little bit." It's 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 a gentleman detective with flavors and flourishes of this. Uh, poker face on Peacock is episodic, usually episodic reluctant detective because the world building and the character stuff persists but the cases don't. So it's subverting several tropes along the way. It's also uh, a female driven story and it's also um, a class story because it's, uh, it's a class detective story, which is something I didn't cover here, which is the idea that you're Detective is of a certain status and the rest of your world isn't. So uh, you get like Rockford, the everyman investigating the rest of c- civilized society, that kind of thing. Or in this case with Poker Face, it's uh, Natasha Leone's character investigating a world where she's an oddball. Other questions? Anything else? Else, we shall head on. Do I think there's a mystery type that's currently underrated and underrepresented? I do. Uh, I really think juvenile detective, like straight up juvenile detective, is uh, underrepresented because it's almost always written in YA spaces, but it's written in very non-noir circumstances. It's not. It's not hard boiled. It's very tame and they try too hard on Juvenile Detective to sprinkle in other stuff. It's Juvenile Detective, but it's set in a fantasy world, or it's set in a different time period, like Enola Holmes. That's not bad or wrong, but I think you could do so much more with it if you played it straight, if you took it more... Um, if you took more of the rules of mystery and more typical construction and more things you could subvert and then put it in the hands of a younger kid who lenses the world the way younger kids do, you'd get a lot more traction out of it. If you modernized Enola Holmes, I think you could get a lot of ground out of it. I think juvenile detective, even more than my very beloved hard-boiled detective, I think juvenile detective is very much an underappreciated and underrated type of mystery. I can tell you, I think procedurals and cozies are overrated uh, because they have a level of safety and high audience expectation to them. You know that if you write them, you'll get it. You'll get some kind of audience, but it, it won't necessarily be your best work. Good question. Good question. Anything else? Else we shall get out of here. I don't have outro music tonight. So we'll just have to hum something. To the outro. I want to thank everybody for being here. I really appreciate this. I honestly thought for like the first hour I was just talking to myself. So it was nice to have people come in and ask questions. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I will see you guys tomorrow for the writer's chat right here on both Twitch and YouTube at 7 p.m. Eastern. I'll see you right back here for the writer's chat. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, This will go up on the podcast feed later tonight. And um, this will go up on YouTube tomorrow. Although apparently, here's the thing I found out. Since I'm live streaming on YouTube, it's already on the YouTube channel. And I don't know if my uploading it is unnecessary or not but it's already up on YouTube. You can go watch this or you can go watch it in the VOD on Twitch or whatever. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, If you dug this and you want to see more, the the best thing you can do, uh, jump over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better and tell me you want to see more and tell me what more you want to see. Do we want to do other genres? We're going to do fantasy at some point, but do you want to see me do sci-fi? Do you want me to do like a particular kind of romance that I didn't cover before? Do you have a, a genre you want me to talk about? Let me know, and I'll be more than happy to put something together. So I will see you guys right back here tomorrow, Wednesday the 22nd, for the Writer's Chat. Until then, all power to all people. Have a great night. I will talk to you very, very soon. See ya!